Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 23. We're ahead of schedule by five minutes, fellas. That's not too bad. Extra five minutes worth of preaching. I like it. If you were here uh, earlier, you got a chance to see the sunrise here at the church. I've, uh, I've, I've read about it. Um, it looked beautiful. It really did. Sun rises in the east. Sun rises, that's what it does. Sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It does that because that's its purpose. It's what it was made to do. Rises in the east and sets in the west. And it gives us light, gives us warmth, gives us life. It was made to do that. That's its purpose. And so it's going to do that. In fact, if you, if you can make it like a person, I suppose, it wants to do that. And it always wants to do that. I'll tell you, I've, uh, I've gone out on the water before, gone fishing, gone with friends. They have boats that float, some of them. Some of them have boats that don't float. They give you a bucket and say, let's go on out. But those who have a boat that floats, it's hard to sink that boat. That boat's going to float. That boat's designed to float. It's built to float. Its purpose is to float. In fact, if, it, if that boat is made the way it's supposed to be made, it's actually quite hard to sink that boat. You've got to hit it pretty hard, or you've got to add some pretty severe trauma to it in order to sink that boat. I've had the benefit, the, the, the joy, I don't get a chance to do it anymore, but I had the joy of flying airplanes when I was a little bit younger, and some of you in here have done the same thing. And every time you fly an airplane, you take somebody up, and they always ask us. Inevitably, they ask three questions around here. Number one, can I go see my house? Number two, can we go fly over the lake? And number three, what happens when you lose an engine? It's the same thing everybody asks, those three questions. What happens when you lose an engine? Eventually, that's going to come up. And, of course, you answer that the same way all the time. You shut the engine down, and you sit there. You know, plane flies along. Now, you don't have any power, but it's not as though you're dropping out of the sky. You say, well, that's what happens when you lose an engine. And why? Because a plane wants to fly. It's built to do that. I mean, you've got to work really hard to keep that plane from flying, that boat from floating. It's a hard one to do if we're going to get off the boats, all right? You've got to work really, really hard to keep that sun from shining and warming giving us light and life because that's its purpose let's pray father we thank you we love you for who you are but we also love you for what you have done and continue to do we love you that you continue to be patient with us that you have displayed uh, not just on easter morning but throughout our lives displayed the love and compassion and strength and discipline of jesus christ we thank you that you care about us, that you, you help us through difficult times and you celebrate with us in joyous times. We thank you, Father, that we are here for a reason, that we have hope for the future because of what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what he has done for us. We thank you, Father, and we celebrate that today. In Jesus' name, amen. You're in Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read Luke chapter 24 for you just a moment. You've heard this before. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, 
The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, and I love this line, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are you in the cemetery looking for Jesus, right? Why are you around the tombstones looking for Jesus? If you're looking for Jesus, you can go anywhere but right here, because this is only where the dead are. He's not here, in verse 6. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then, then they remembered his words. This was three days. Three days after the crucifixion. From the very beginning, we knew that this was going to be the way it was. And sure enough, that's the way this plan unfolded. Three days after the crucifixion, Jesus is no longer in the grave, raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the resurrection is victory proved. Victory proved. During our previous, previous service, we talked about the victory won was not at the resurrection. It wasn't even at the crucifixion. It was in the garden as Jesus is wrestling with Satan. Do I move ahead? Do I go ahead? Or do I stop? Victory was ultimately won in the garden when he made the decision to do the will of the Father. The tomb and the garden. But then there's this middle part. When victory is fully experienced and lived out on the cross. Jesus was crucified three days ago. But if you remember the story, he wasn't by himself. He was put to death between two thieves, wasn't he? Two, as Mark calls them, rebels. Two rebels. One who rejected him and one who accepted him. And by the way, what are the odds, right? That Jesus is going to be crucified between two people. One's going to accept Jesus Christ. One's going to reject Jesus Christ. To see the dichotomy of good and evil. To see this difference and the struggle that man goes through throughout their lives. This interaction between Jesus and these criminals, I'm sure, is something that we need to take to heart. That we need to learn. And perhaps it's kind of a strange scene in Scripture. I think it's easy for us to believe this scene in Scripture because it's written there, but it's hard for us to fully understand what's happening, what's going on. And so it's hard for us to believe it or live it out in our own lives. That here, even here, prior to the resurrection, prior to Jesus returning to the Father, that here on the cross... Jesus wants to save. He wants to save. The reason he wants to save is that's his purpose. That's what his entire ministry was built to do, was to save. See, I'll tell you what what started this, this particular sermon series. We're going to go into sermon series justified. I've had a conversation recently. It was over the past six months about the false idea that Jesus is first your enemy and then your Savior. First your enemy and then your Savior. First he demands the bar. 
First, he demands the getting in line. First, he demands walking the line, towing the line. I don't care however you want to say it. And then secondly, if you do that, he becomes your savior. You've got to work into it. You've got to prod Jesus into. You've got to talk him into, ease him into saving your life. Jesus is built to save. That's what he wants to do. In fact, if there's any way Jesus doesn't save, it's not you talking him into salvation. It's you rejecting salvation. His natural course is to save. After all, why wouldn't it be? Aren't we called his children? His natural reaction is to save. And here on the cross, before the resurrection, we get what I think is maybe one of the greatest Bible lessons ever preached. And it's preached from a thief on the cross. Chapter 23, 32 through 43 says this. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, that's Jesus, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Even now, Jesus wants to save. Even now, Jesus wants to forgive. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written... A notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't want to focus on the mockery of the first criminal, of the first thief, of the first rebel. However, I do want to focus on the lesson, on the sermon, on the Bible lesson from the second thief. The second thief says this to Jesus, or says this to the first criminal. He says, don't you fear God in Luke 23, 40? Don't you fear God? You see, the non-believer fears God out of eternal judgment. Perhaps fearing God out of eternal death. A non-believer fears God because they think God is distant and that God is a hateful God and a wrathful God first. And a loving God only second. Even Christians sometimes treat Christ in this way to be genuinely scared of who Jesus is. That was never what Jesus taught from the beginning of his ministry until now. For those who know Christ or for those who are coming to know Christ, coming to know the nature and character of God and know, that our, know our relationship with Him, fearing God is having a deep reverence for God. 
To revere God is more than respect. It is knowing God's hatred of sin and knowing His judgment, even though a believer in Christ need not fear eternal judgment. We don't have to be, nor should we be, scared of God, but we hold God in very great esteem. And we do that to all things that we fear. I think a great example, we've used this before, is electricity or fire. You don't have to be scared of it. Using it right now. But you know as well as I do, you better treat that with some, with some reverence. Treat it with some respect. Or it can hurt, can it? Do some very powerful things. It's up to us to fear God with great reverence. We obey, we seek, we submit to the Lordship of Christ. And then we begin to see reality for what it truly is. That's what it means to fear God. And we read this a lot, the different verses about fearing God. I like Proverbs 8.13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. As the psalmist is, or as the Proverbs are being written in the, in the voice of wisdom, wisdom says, I hate pride, I hate arrogance, I hate evil behavior, and I hate perverse speech. I like the words of Jesus in Matthew 10 when it comes to fearing God. It says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, again, this is coming from Jesus, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. This is a complete awe and reverence for who and what God is. Everybody has awe and reverence for God on Sunday morning, don't we? Singing the songs, reading the Bible. As we said last week, Monday morning is a whole lot different than Sunday morning, isn't it? It's a reverence for God throughout your life, throughout your very existence. And so one thief says to the other, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence. Since you're under the same sentence. And what sentence is that? Don't you fear God because you're under the sentence of death. The thief understands. The thief understands he's going to die physically. And look, not only are we under the same sentence of dying physically, but humanity is under a sentence of eternal separation from God. That's the second death. That's the ultimate death. And I don't know exactly what it looks like being eternally separated from God, but I don't want to find out. Because I know from God comes everything beautiful. From God comes everything good. Now, from God comes some really hard stuff, doesn't it? When he starts talking about discipline, he starts talking about self-control. But from God comes everything righteous, everything noble. I don't want to be separated from God, but that's the sentence mankind is under without Jesus Christ. And so even a criminal asks, don't you fear God since you're under the very same sentence? The sentence of death and destruction. We're under that sentence not because God hates us, but because like Mark says, we rebel against the creator in our minds, our spirits, our actions. It is the head, the hearts, and the hands. We do. Sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it's a loss of control. Sometimes you're absolutely 100% in control and you know exactly what you're doing. And rebelling against God himself. And so we are under this same sentence without Jesus Christ. 
Humanity is under the sentence of death because we separate ourselves from the life giver and the life saver. I've done that, I, and I, I don't think that my future, in fact, I know my future would be very scary, very dim, very non-existent without Jesus. We don't completely open up our minds and our hearts sometimes on Sunday mornings, and if we ever did, I think we would begin to see this, realize this in our own lives. And so the man says, don't you fear God because you are under the same sentence. What else does he say in 2341? The same thief speaking. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. You see, church, this is the turning point in this man's life. It's a turning point in your life. It's a turning point in my life. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. This is why Jesus died. This is why Jesus rose again. This is self-examination from this thief, this rebel on the cross. You think you're better than him? I mean, I do, right? When I read of a thief, of a rebel on the cross, and yet here he is preaching a lesson. It's humility. It's confession that this man is saying in the presence of Jesus. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. Repentance and understanding that the wages of sin are death. He is taking responsibility, church, for a fallen life. Well, we love to sing praises to Jesus on Easter morning. Well, we have to take responsibility for a sin-filled life. We're getting what we deserve. We care not about the need for Christ if we do not have a correct assessment of ourselves. That's humility. That's recognizing that there is a problem. And that's the point of confession. That's what brings us close and helps us to use what Jesus has done this morning. Luke 18, 10 through 14, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. Tax collector Jesus is just using here as a bad dude. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen to what Jesus himself says. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified. That thief on the cross is as justified before Christ as you are. We don't even know what he did. We say thief. It's really rebel. Who knows what he did? But he's justified before Christ. All those who exalt themselves be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We don't like to remember the bad stuff. And if we do, we still compare ourselves to other fallen people, don't we? Don't think for a second that I'm the only one in this room that compares myself to other fallen people rather than the moral perfection of Jesus Christ. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we think, I'm doing all right. No, so far, this thief on the cross is doing a lot better than I am. Maybe a lot better than you are. This recognition of who Jesus is. 2341, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. He goes on, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
There's a reason Jesus had to be the one to die for us. Jesus is, from the very beginning of Scripture, the perfect sacrificial lamb. We talked about this a little bit in our communion time. Jesus had to become the creature to represent creation. As what? As perfect and beautiful and noble. Even the thief knows this. Even the thief knows that the charges leveled against Jesus then and today are baseless. Misery loves company, and yet this thief is espousing the innocence of Christ. Church, why is it such a, why is it such a, a hard thing? Imagine moral perfection, and then you can begin to imagine why Jesus is hated. He's all the things that are beautiful. This world wants to destroy all the things that are humble, all the things that are giving, all the things that are lovely. The innocent this world destroys. But really, more to the point, this world hates righteousness. This world hates the pursuit of righteousness, and it always will. It's a struggle, not so much to accept all the time the truth of Jesus, but to live out the truth of Jesus in our lives. We've got to look sometimes at the hard. We've got to look sometimes at the ugly, and we have to realize that Jesus is perfect. And that Jesus represents you before the Father, before God Himself. I think that's a pretty special place to be. Luke 23, 42, this guy hadn't done yet. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. You ever wonder to yourself if you could figure out a way, what do I have to do to be accepted by Christ? You ever ask yourself that question? I wonder what the process is. I wonder what the words are. I wonder what the, what the steps are. I wonder if I can do it now. I wonder if I have to wait till Sunday. I wonder if I have to do it. The thief says, Jesus, remember me. Trust me, church, Jesus fills in the blanks. Jesus knows what's being said. The thief simply says, I realize who you are and who I am. Remember me. This is a plea for mercy. It's a plea for forgiveness, for salvation. What is the thief doing? Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But this is more than mere words, church. Paul goes on to say in that same passage in Romans, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? The thief on the cross, not knowing everything about Jesus, believes that he is who he says he is. Now, some say this plea is motivated by nothing more than a fear of death. But if you look at the rebuke of this thief towards the other, we see something much deeper than that in this thief's heart. His eyes are open to his condition and the cause of it, and he has cut to the heart a deep cut. And so what if it's motivated by fear of eternal death? Aren't we celebrating because Jesus does away with eternal death? Aren't we celebrating because Jesus gives us eternal life? 
What if Jesus said, follow me, and what's your reward? Well, eternal death. Sorry. Be a pretty empty church. But that was enough. That was at least part of it. To motivate this man to accept who and what Jesus is to be saved forever. We recognize our separation from God and we don't want to be separated forever. Certainly not after the physical death. And so the thief simply says, Jesus, remember me. Look, again, most of you have been here for a while. Sometimes, you know, particularly on Easter, there's some faces I don't recognize. And I don't know how you've been taught. I don't know what you're trying to, to learn and discover and understand. But we see a man accepted where he is being punished, being crucified on a cross for being an evildoer. We see him accepted by Jesus Christ simply by recognizing, saying, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. But he also says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is recognition of who Jesus is. This is reverence and submission. Jesus is is king. I am not. You know that, right? We all know that. You are not the most important person in this room. Neither am I. We are here to worship Jesus Christ himself. He is your creator and mine. And if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have a future. He is king and we are not. Jesus has the ability and the right to determine his kingdom and he will rule. It is by the king's grace that we are saved through his faith, through faith in his love, forgiveness, and power. Furthermore, this faith gives life through Jesus Christ. This man is about to die yet still sues for life even after the physical death. He recognizes that there is something more. His eyes have been opened. What do we say? Well, unfortunately for him, he's been alive way too long. He's hanging on the cross. Sorry. That's what we think, isn't it? You don't have enough time to turn the ship around. In other words, we tell the thief sometimes, you don't have enough time to save yourself. It's the way we live out our Christianity too, too much, too often. I'll accept Jesus and his salvation. But then apparently I've got to go save myself as well. It has never worked that way. It will never work that way. Understanding and believing the truth of Jesus Christ, that gives us salvation. So long as it is a cut to the heart. He is hanging on the cross on his deathbed, so to speak. and He has done terrible things by his own admission. He doesn't have time to fix what he broke. He doesn't have time to make it right again. He doesn't have time to justify himself, his life, his decisions. Sorry, it's too late for the thief. And then Jesus gives an answer. And perhaps a rather strange one, 2343, Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Church, it doesn't matter if this thief has 60 seconds or 60 lifetimes. He is not going to justify himself. You're not going to justify yourself. That's why you're here. Justification, to explain away the problems. Jesus justifies us to be declared righteous before God. We are justified before God by our trust in Christ, no more, no less. 
And he says something kind of strange. Today you'll be with me in paradise. If you read through Scripture, Jesus doesn't use that word very often. Rarely ever, actually. It's a garden. That's what he's talking about. It's a garden similar to Eden. That's where you would get this word, paradisos. You would get this from picturing the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Even now, as Jesus is on the cross during his death at the end of the physical life, Jesus is saving. And he's saving this other man who is minutes, moments, seconds away from death himself. Jesus saves him. Church, you can fight it all you want, but I got news for you. Jesus is built to save. Jesus wants to save. The sun comes up in the east, sets in the west, and it's always going to because that's the way it's built. That's its purpose. The plane's going to fly. The boat's going to float. Jesus saves. He goes there first. That's what he wants to do. Jesus saves. He must save. He has to save. That's his sole purpose in ministry, ordained at the beginning of time itself. If we give our lives to Jesus to save, he cannot not save. He doesn't say no. Jesus doesn't say too late. He doesn't say too bad. Your sins are too egregious. He doesn't suggest for a second that the other man must pay for his own sins eternally. He doesn't quiz him on his church, his biblical knowledge. He doesn't quiz him on his family status. Jesus recognizes trust, and for that matter, this man's life is saved. Great, we say. Problem solved. I know what we can do. Let's just wait to our deathbed and then accept Jesus. I mean, if we do that, we just live any way we want, right? Isn't that the lesson we're supposed to gain from this guy? Isn't that what we can learn? That's a very bad idea. And it's a very bad idea for two reasons. Number one is this. You have no idea what tomorrow's going to bring. You have no idea what this afternoon's going to bring other than ham. <laughs> but you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And today's the day to secure your life with Jesus Christ. When Jesus was talking about laying up earthly treasures instead of heavenly treasures, he says this in Luke 12... But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? James says this in James chapter 4. Now listen, you say today or tomorrow we're going to go to this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. And all such boasting is evil. Today is the day. Now is the time. You may be on your cross right now. After all, wasn't it Jesus that said, take up your cross, follow me. Second reason it's not a good idea to put this off is this. Let us not use the love and patience of Jesus to justify sin. Don't use your spiritual freedom to justify sin. Jesus' love and patience is, mean to just, is meant to justify us, not the thing Jesus hates. 
If we do that, it is a rejection of who Christ is because it's a rejection of who He stands for, what He stands for. James 4 says this, if anyone then knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. So why Jesus? Why not our own strength? Why not our own ingenuity? Our own wisdom? Why not some other philosophy? Why not some other savior? Why not some other word? Because of today. Because I don't care what philosophy you turn to. I don't care what word you turn to. I don't care whose wisdom you turn to. I don't care what story, what fable, what fairy tale you come up with. There isn't anyone ever throughout history, throughout time, that has been resurrected by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, from the grave, from the tomb, to deliver us of our sins. Ever. And so look. If you've got a better offer, take it. But this one's a real one. This one's a real one. And you can take this offer today and throughout life. The resurrection today is proof. Proof witnessed by many that even death has no hold on Jesus. It's going to be a long and difficult search if you try to find another who was resurrected from the dead for you. You will come away empty-handed. You'll come away with no hope, no peace, and no life. The thief accepted Christ while both of them were on the cross. You get the chance to accept Jesus any day, any time, starting now. It's a beautiful gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ. We thank you that he saved thief on the cross, we thank you that he that Jesus saves us I thank you that Jesus saved me I thank you that he loves us, cares about us Father I would ask as we leave this place that Easter not just be today that we truly do think about walk along with, commune with enjoy life together with Jesus as he directs and guides our path, he is, he's our Savior. God, he's our, he's our hero. We thank you for who and what he is. Amen. Please stand and sing.
Sunday, but again, I hope this Easter Sunday is Easter Monday, and Easter Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, all through the week, share life with the beauty of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that Jesus died for us. We thank you that we get to gather as brothers and sisters. We thank you that we get to have hope for tomorrow, but also hope for eternity by the gift that Jesus gives us. We know he wants to save. That's what he what his purpose is, certainly his purpose in our lives. And so we thank you that we can rest upon that and that we can trust him, that Jesus is our God and our Savior and our friend. In Jesus' name, amen.